ladies after a service a couple of weeks ago. Um, do do the book of Revelation. And, uh, the big question is, why do we let such people in our church? Well, they were here before me. So it's not but uh, we're going to begin uh, a study of the book of Revelation today. And uh, it's a book I've preached from quite a bit over the years in different places, but have never taken it as a whole. And uh, as you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's held a special place, I think, in the books of the Bible for people. Uh, people are very passionate about the book of Revelation because there are different ways of approaching it. And this, this is a challenge when it comes to Revelation. And the danger is to make that the touchstone, that your opinion of Revelation becomes the definitive way of looking at it. I remember having a, a fellow in our church at, in Edmonton, and a very fine guy, and uh, but he came into the faith on a text in Revelation, and he he could not cope with my interpretation in some places. He left on several occasions and came back, uh, but he just could not cope with someone who would have a different interpretation. Now, if you go to Matthew or Genesis or anywhere else, oh, well, that's your opinion. I, I, I respect your opinion. We go. When it came to Revelation, that was, that was it. No old card. And that's the way people approach Revelation. You're a pre-millennialist. You're an amillennialist. You're a post-millennialist. Well, I can't live with you. I can't be in the same church with someone who doesn't believe uh, what I believe about the beasts that emerges out of the sea or about what this number means and what that number means. And people become very passionate about it. And as a result, uh, I think sometimes pastors avoid um, preaching on the book of Revelation because they may have people who simply... Uh, say, well, I can't abide that understanding and that interpretation. One of the things that I hope you know by now is that whatever my view on it, whatever my approach is, I'm coming at it as the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. And what our task is together as a congregation is to work through Revelation together uh, in concert, ensemble, and, and you might say in French, as we pray our way through the book of Revelation. And uh, so I am going to be looking and leaning on you, especially the two ladies that suggested I do the book of Revelation, that they be fasting and praying uh, for uh, a proper approach to the book of Revelation, uh, that we, and that, that ought to be our approach to every part of the Word of God, so that, so, that we are praying for uh, the, the person in their study through the week, uh, the delivery and the reception of that word. But uh, uh, many people have had a very passionate approach to the book of Revelation. I think another reason why is that people, in trying to understand what's going on in the world, will go to the book of Revelation. People who are scared or frightened enough to plug the book of Revelation into the book present-day events. So they'll read The Guardian in one hand, and they'll read the book of Revelation, and they'll say, okay, here's Putin, and here's this verse in Revelation, so I'll 
direct connection between one and the other, and that will be my way of understanding this passage. And it's what one person called newspaper eschatology. That you begin to see life events and read those into the book of Revelation. And that becomes very dangerous because uh, uh, I am of a certain age where I grew up with Hal Lindsey's book that went through several red revisions uh, because the date had to be changed again and again and again. The light gray planet Earth, you may probably have several copies in your home of you who are of a certain vintage. And uh, that's what often happens uh, when the Gulf War was on. Back in the 90s, uh, or the Iraq War, and uh, all of these things. And so you said, Saddam Hussein, you're from what? Now Saddam Hussein is gone for the last uh, you know, uh, 15 years or so. And so people have to revise. And you say, oh, wait now, it's Putin. We know it's Putin because uh, you know, X, Y, Z. And this is the path people go down. And uh, so it becomes very uh, difficult then. In, in approaching the book of Revelation in a very level handed way. And to do so humbly, uh, when you read through not just Revelation, but any book of the Bible, when it comes to commentators, you're going to get disagreements on the timing of things. We saw that with the Jesus' uh, approach to Matthew 24, when Jesus talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age. Uh, what time frame are we looking at there? How much of that is applied to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? And how much of that is cast forward into the end time that we're living in today? Now, then people say, well, you take it all as the end time. Other people say, no, you take it all as happening in 70 AD. And others say, there's a mix of both. There's a balance there. So there's one has to exercise a measure of humility when it comes to the book of Revelation. As one person has said, this book is about Jesus Christ. Not the Pope, not Hitler, not Napoleon, but Jesus Christ. Not any other person in history. That's not to say that these people don't factor in, because we're talking about uh, world history, and world history is shaped by people, kings, religious leaders, presidents, prime ministers, all these sorts of people shape world history. The Neros, uh, the Domitians, all these different emperors, all were very much at the forefront of John's thinking when Revelation was written. So it is made up of people, but the book is about Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means that Jesus gave the revelation, and it's about Jesus as well. So uh, this is what we need to understand first and foremost as we approach the book of Revelation. Uh, and so I, I look for your prayerful support as we work together through the book. The book is also... Uh, is set up in cycles, three cycles in the book of Revelation. And uh, if you look at the Gospels, for example, you, you know by this time that the Gospel is written from a perspective. John is writing from his perspective. 
Mark is writing from his perspective. Luke is writing from his perspective, telling the same story in four different ways. Much of CBS, CBC, and NBC, and CNN will tell the story from their perspective. Same story. John is doing the same. If I were to uh, Take a picture of this church from a certain angle or a video camera, as one, one uh, uh, commentator has wisely said. He said, if you, if you stand on the balcony and pan out over the congregation this way, you get a certain perspective. If you stand over in that corner and pan this way, you might get another perspective. And that's what John is doing. It's not beginning in chapter 1 and then the story goes along and ends in chapter 22, but it is a cycle. Beginning and ending on three different occasions until you come to the end of the book. So, a person might explain something to you. And they may, you may look at them and they have a huge look on their face. Just as many of you have. <laughs> and uh, then, then you might say, well, let me put it another way. Let's take it from this angle, this direction. They still might not get it. So you say, well, Another way of putting it is this. Now that's what John is doing. He's telling the same history over three times until he arrives at the end of the book. And so uh, the, uh, the book is basically a book that is written in the first century, written around 95 AD in the time of Emperor Domitian, where Christians were facing a great deal of persecution. And so it was telling them, God was communicating to them in a very painful, difficult time, how do you, as believers, live under the shadow of the Roman Empire, who were noted for their cruelty in stopping of opposition? The cross was a, a great picture of that. The lengths to which Rome would go in, in order to stomp out uh, uh, any kind of opposition. How do we do that then? Well, what John does is show that even in the light of suffering of God's people, and that's what it's, it's painting a very honest picture, it's not saying this is how you avoid suffering, this is how you this is how you dodge difficulty in your life. But this is how you walk through all of those difficulties in life. And he is giving us a framework for doing that. And this is where getting lost in the, in the weeds becomes very dangerous. If you get lost in the details and miss what the overall passage is telling you about who God is, who we are and what the overall theme is, then you begin to lose the purpose of the book itself. And so it's important for us to keep the big picture. It's painting a picture for us straight off the bat of the fact that Jesus is sovereign. In the first few uh, chapters, this is what the picture is that's painting for us. It's not going into all the troubles that they're going through, the difficulties, but it's giving us a beautiful panoramic view of the sovereignty and the glory and the character of Jesus. That's setting us up to 
to say, okay, this is who you're going to walk through this world with. This is who is in charge of world history and world events. It's in his hands. And so it, it is with that framework in mind that uh, uh, John then unfolds some of the more difficult parts of world history that the church will have to pass through. John is writing the book. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, almost all commentators would say he doesn't identify himself apart from the name John, but the style and the language and the wording that is used is very, very similar to that of the Gospel of John. He doesn't identify himself because most people think he doesn't have to identify himself, that people knew who it was that was writing this book. So he does not say, oh, I'm the one who followed Jesus uh, in his earthly ministry. But the style and the wording and so on is heavily suggested that this is indeed the John that wrote the Gospel of John. So what does it say at the beginning? What is the prologue? How does it introduce uh, such a massive theme? And we're, we're talking about world history from the time of Jesus' death to the time he comes back again. So we're talking about a broad scope of human history. And how does John introduce that? Well, we're going to see it in the first three verses here. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation there is the word apocalypse, the unveiling. You know the 70s movie Apocalypse Now. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's the idea of pulling back. What we're seeing being pulled back and, and discovering is a who is Jesus in all his glory? And so you read through the first part, and it said, I turn to see the voice. This is verse 12. I was speaking to me, and I'm turning. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with golden sash around his chest, and his hairs of his head were white like wool. His eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze and it's uh, refined in the furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters, and so on. And so it's setting out, it's unveiling for us the character of Jesus and the, the, the plan that God has for the world. So what we're looking at here in the book of Revelation is world history between the first and second coming of Jesus. He's making known to his church who are saying, perhaps, where is God in this persecution of Domitian? This, where the emperor is coming down so hard upon us. How do we understand this? How do we make sense of it? And John is given this testimony by uh, the angel of God to help them to walk through those flames, to walk through those difficulties. And so it falls into the genre. A genre is a, you'll remember from English class in high school, is a, 
type of literature. So you have uh, fantasy, you might have sci-fi, you might have uh, historical novels, you might have poetry, all these different kinds of things. And the Bible is made up of all of those, not sci-fi, but it's made up of poetry, prophecy, history, and you have to understand each book in that way. You don't read the Psalms like you read the book of Acts. One is poetry, one is history. You don't read the book of Revelation as you would the Gospel of Matthew. Because with apocalyptic literature, there is it, it is a series of images that are meant to tell a story. And we're familiar with things like the Lord of the Rings or uh, the Chronicles of Narnia and things like that that take animal figures or uh, monsters or whatever it may be to convey a truth. That's what C.S. Lewis really borrowed heavily on when he, when he described uh, Aslan and described the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia as a lion. And the gospel is all throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. But C.S. Lewis is writing in that genre to convey a powerful truth through the use of images. That's what John is doing in the book of Revelation. He's taking things that people understood. He's taking things that are out of this world and, and terrifying and striking to convey an idea. And so we're to read the meaning behind the image. When we hear of, for example, uh, uh, the swords coming out of uh, the, the, the mouth of Jesus, and his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came sharp two-edged swords. Are we to imagine that Jesus uh, in heaven right now has swords coming out of his mouth? No, he's, he's teaching us that uh, he is the one who gives us his word. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, the Bible tells us. When it describes him in chapter 5 as a lamb looking at him as a man being slaughtered, do we imagine that Jesus is now a sheep in heaven with cuts and, and blood all over him lying on a front pew? But when John sees it, he's trying to convey a truth. What did John see? He saw a lamb looking as it had been slaughtered. That's what he saw in his vision. But what, what are we to understand? What is the truth behind that idea that Jesus was a sacrifice for us, for our sins, for our guilt and our shame. Are we to imagine, again, Jesus as a lion going around with a mane and paws and so on? No. John was given a vision of a lion, but we are to imagine a, a, a Jesus in whose hand is all power and dominion and authority, and who is able to destroy his enemies. That's the picture, that's the image of apocalyptic literature. It's also heavy on numbers, as you know. 
uh, famous number of the book of Revelation is probably 666, the number of the beast. And so our other numbers, like a thousand, which is the uh, a, a number of fullness, or seven, which is the number of perfection. That's why he's writing to the seven churches in Asia, because it's a perfect number. The seven spirits of God. Does God have seven spirits? No, there's one Holy Spirit. But the seven speak of the perfection of the Holy Spirit. And so you have all these numbers which we're going to uh, look at, Lord willing, as we go through and see what each one of them means. But this is the idea of the apocalypse of Jesus. It's a kind of literature that we approach differently than we would Acts or Matthew. Both are the Word of God, but not both are not to be interpreted in exactly the same way. And so we exercise that uh, uh, that uh, that direction when we come to it. We we are, are directed by the kind of literature it is. Just when I come to the Psalms, I. I also say I have to shift gears. It's poetry. I've got to think of it as poetry, but look at the truth that the person is trying to convey behind it. Now, liberal churches have gone in a different direction. They have they looked at the gospels in that way, where they say, "Well, here's a miracle. It, it didn't really happen. We just have to see the myth, the, the, the moral behind it, like Aesop's Fables." You see, that's where we would depart. We'd say, well, that's wrong. This is a history. This is history. Here is Genesis. It's history. It's not, it's not poetry. And so it has to be read as history. And if there was a miracle there, a miracle happened. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's not a lesson that God is trying to get across to us. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. What are we to understand about this? The things that must soon take place. The idea is not that everything written in the book of Revelation is ultimately fulfilled within that generation. We're talking about something that has been inaugurated, an age that has been inaugurated. When we think of inaugurations, we can think of Elizabeth, who in 1952, I believe, I, uh, is that right? Or was it 54? I think it was 52. 52, thank you. 52. Uh, so she's 70 years on the throne, and, but she was inaugurated, but there was so much history over those 70 years, wasn't there? And what took place was her inauguration. And a new era had begun when she had that crown put on her head and that robe wrapped around her. She inaugurated a whole stage of history. And when we come to the things which will soon take place, John is saying the things which will soon now be unleashed on world history. The death and resurrection of Jesus unleashed a whole new era, as we saw last week. All authority in heaven and earth, Jesus said at the end of Matthew, has been given to me. 
Now, therefore, go in and, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, command, teaching them all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's what has been inaugurated. That is, that is the, the, the events that have, are now unfolding and that are now taking place. They begin in the first century with those to whom John has been writing, but it is a cyclical pattern that will repeat itself down through church history, even up until the present day. The things that must soon take place. And so the time of waiting is over. The Old Testament prophets, they talk about the last days. In the last days, this will happen. Daniel talked about the last days. And it was still a long way off until Jesus came. Jesus inaugurated the last days. In this last age. So we have been living in the last time since Jesus went back to heaven after he died. These are the last times. Now, there, there is a time coming in human history when we might talk about specifically, oh, we're living in the very last years of the earth. That may be true. But what we're looking at over the last 2,000 years is the church in the last times. In other words, Jesus is bringing to completion the things that the Old Testament prophets said were going to come. He is, he is now setting that in motion. This, in other words, is the last phase of God's plan before eternity. And so Paul says, see, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. This is the day, the age of God's grace in which we have been living. That's, so that's the time frame in which we think about the book of Revelation. Not that it's all going to be fulfilled in John's day, but it's going to be inaugurated. The wheels are going to begin. The seals are going to be opened, and Jesus is going to set these matters in motion in the world, as we'll see in chapter 5. Then we see to whom it is written. The chain of witness, in other words, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to a servant. So God, the Father, gives it to Jesus, the Son, who gives it to the angel, who gives it to John. And John now passes it on through writing and through vision to the church. To his servants, look at verse 1, which God gave him to show his servants. Who are those people? Are they a specified number of people? Are they just an elite group? No. They are God's people in all ages. We, every believer, is a servant of God, a servant of Christ. We serve him in our families, our workplaces, our schools, wherever we are. We serve him. And he has been given, and given this vision to show his service the things that must be soon take place. In other words, 
to give us an apparatus for living in a world much like that of first century uh, uh, um, Rome and the Roman Empire. How do Christians live in that milieu? How do they cope in that uh, 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 um, world where they are oppressed and misunderstood? Now, what we are experiencing here in Disable is we're in the minority in the world, as I often say. What is the reality? The reality is what we often read in our bulletins, in reading about the persecuted church. That's the reality that most of the church is living with, whether it's Chiapas, Mexico, whether it's Iran, whether it's North Korea. These are people with millions uh, of, of, of people and millions of Christians. And what we find ourselves living with today it, it, here in, in Disable and Prince Edward Island is not typical, it's not representative of what's going on in the church. Listen to this, just this is in our bulletin. In, in Sudan, a married couple in Sudan are currently on trial and if convicted could face 100 lashes along with expulsion from the area. Imagine waking up and thinking you're going to receive 100 lashes. And yet, that's what Christians live with in Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Algeria, Nigeria. The list goes on and on. I could be here all morning. What's the all countries? Where you take your life into your own hands. And it's in this context where John is writing to the churches and to help them to work through the crucible that they are going to go through. And so we, uh, we, we see the book of Revelation as a kind of a, a, an unfolding of what Paul said, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities against powers of the world, spiritual forces in the evil realms, in the, in the heavenly places, as it were. He is writing to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, and how we work through that. What kind of people ought we to be? And so you're, you don't get too far into Revelation until you get to the Letters to the seven churches. We're going to be looking at each one of those individually. And he comes to those churches and he doesn't say, well, I know it's hard for you, so I'm going to cut this in slack. And you don't have to, you know, maintain those standards of holiness and truth and diligence that you normally would. No, he doesn't. He comes, he says, to the church in Ephesus. You have been bold, you've been brave, but you've lost your to the church in Laodicea. I wish that you were hot or cold and not lukewarm. He doesn't pander to them. He says, look, you are going to go through some difficulties. You're living under Satan's shadow. I know it's hard for you. But he never, he says, my grace and my power is enough for you so that you don't have to compromise when it comes to holiness. 
when it comes to integrity in your school or in your business or in wherever you are. He's writing to the saints who are scattered in every walk of life. Rich and poor, male, female, boys and girls, educated and uneducated. He's writing to them to say, this is who I am. Now be faithful. That in a world of compromise, you're not to compromise. You're to stand for the principles of truth. When all your workmates are saying, let's go down this road, you're saying, no, I will not. This when all your classmates are saying, here, we found an easier way of doing it, you say, no, that is wrong. This is, this is the way God would have you to do it. When we're, when we're pressured to compromise and conform to the world, the letters to the churches tell us otherwise, that regardless of the suffering, regardless of what we lose, Jesus never allows his people to compromise gospel integrity, gospel truth, gospel holiness. And so he prepares us for it. And John who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Christ. That's what we are called to bear witness to each and every day. And we're certainly not in the place that many Christians are around the world. Nevertheless, it can be very difficult when the pressure is subtle. And we are seeing it in a society that is, before our very eyes, turning away from God. I, mean, is it, I, I don't think that's a stretch anymore. It's not a conspiracy theory to say that our society is completely turning itself upside down when a, a biological male can identify as a, a female and vice versa. When, as I said last Sunday night, lawmakers in California are now trying to pass laws so that we can destroy a child even weeks out of the womb. It's not good, it's not good enough for people to destroy life in the womb anymore. They want to have the right to destroy life outside the womb. And so these are things that are actively being debated and laws that are being, trying to be passed in these places. And so where does the church, when the church tries to stand against the tide of that, are we ready for the pushback? And Revelation speaks a great deal of that. It speaks about the, of people living in that context. And so it, it, it doesn't say, here's a way of avoiding something. Or here's how you get out of that. But it says when you suffer, when you go through those things, when you have to endure and stand up at work or stand before your friends or stand at school or wherever it is, I will be with you. That great is your reward in heaven. That I am still sovereign in your life. That I hold you in the palm of my hand. That's what he's saying to the church throughout the book of Revelation. But along with that, he gives the blessing. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. In other words, the words of blessing, he's just reading it out loud. And that's how often it was 
who is delivered in a church. And blessed are those who hear the and keep what is written for the time written in it for the time is near. So in the midst of the book of Revelation, where you hear of the unleashing of judgment after judgment and so on, and international upheaval and spiritual warfare and all of these things, woven throughout is this idea of blessing. Nancy Guthrie, whom some of you are familiar with, has just recently put out a book on Revelation called Blessing. What an unusual title for the book of Revelation. That's not the first word that might one might associate with a commentary on Revelation. But she does so because throughout the book there are seven blessing stages. And you'll find that that's the same in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Seven of them. And seven is what? The number of perfection. And so throughout this book, which for so many people is a book of terrifying proportions, is this thread of blessing that runs throughout. That in the midst of all of that, God is blessing his people. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. We will all die, but blessed is the one who dies in the Lord. Will you die in the Lord? If you were to die today, would you die in the Lord? The Bible pronounces a blessing on those who, who, who die in the Lord. But it begins here by saying, in the first blessed statement, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Not good enough just to hear the word of God. Not good enough just to read the word of God. One must keep it. One must come to church or close their Bible in the morning and say, okay, now what is God saying to me? What, what must I do when I go back to my family, when I go back to work or school? Am I tempted at my work or wherever I am to Compromise with my integrity and my truth, with the truth that I uh, I know. Jesus is saying, "Blessed is the one who not only hears but keeps the word of his. He who is faithful and under tribulation, not the one who escapes tribulation, not the one who finds a way around it, but the one who is faithful in tribulation. And so we prepare our hearts and minds for those eventualities." That will come. This is how John then prepares us for our study of Revelation. Takes us into the heavens. It impresses us upon our hearts and minds the glory and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It pronounces the blessing on the saints that they are now privy to history as it is going to unfold. We're told in no uncertain terms that Jesus is sovereign and that Jesus wins. Jesus wins and that if his kingdom is, is, is a winning kingdom, we as well are on the winning side when we believe and trust in him. So whether it was the Gospel of Matthew or the book of Revelation, I'm going to be that broken record who comes back each Sunday and asks you that question. 
Where do you find yourself this morning? Where do you find where did you find yourself when we began Matthew and when Matthew ended? Did you still find yourself outside of Christ? In the place of judgment, or did you find yourself at the end of that gospel safe in Jesus? And what and if you are outside this morning? Are you determined then to find yourself outside when this book ends? Who knows what the world will be like? If this world will even be here when this book ends, depending on how long we go, uh, we don't know. What kind of world will it be? What kind of person will you be? And are you able then to see yourself at the very outset and say, I am blessed because I'm not only here, but today I want to keep the words of this book. So let's pray. Bless us, O oh Lord, as we begin.